Good evening, everybody. <laughs> hope everybody's doing well. I got a warning on YouTube, so I hope it's going to be going well today. Something about some sort of stream configuration or something. So if it's not going, I hope you'll let me know. Or if it is going, maybe you should let me know. Maybe that's the way it should work. <laughs> if it's not working, maybe. Maybe you don't know. Um, welcome to Tarkcraft Epistemology. My name is Travis Shaddix. I uh, once claimed to be a turf grass scientist. Now I'm a stay-at-home dad who manages family life. So <laughs> a couple of housekeeping items. Monday, this coming Monday, our stream will be at 11 a.m., we have a guest author who's going to be presenting his paper. Um, well, we're going to be pre presenting it together. I don't want to put any undue stress on him. Um, I'll do what I do and he'll make sure I don't screw things up. So <laughs> good evening, Jeremy and Looney and Gray. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for participating in the chat. Um, and also next week, I just confirmed today we'll have a second author during our normal time on, it looks like it's on Wednesday. So next week on Monday, we'll have an author who, a uh, guest author. And on Wednesday, we'll have a guest author. Both of them are going to be discussing papers on cool season fall fertility. On one, it's going to be um, cool season uh, nitrogen uptake in cool season grasses. And the other one is going to be nitrogen applications to cool season grasses in the Northwest United States, like in the Washington and Oregon area of the United States. So look forward to that next Monday uh, at 11 and Wednesday at our normal time at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Today, I was going to go over a paper from yesterday's um, podcast. I mentioned I was going to go over the 72 Wilkinson paper today tonight. Um, but I'm going to do that tomorrow morning. I'm going to do the Wilkinson paper tomorrow morning at 10 because there's one last paper that I need to check off the list before I move forward with the more current papers. And that's the 1943 Carroll paper. So that's what we're going to go over today. <clears throat> so I'm going to set the stage for you a little bit here. This paper was written in 1943. So we, let's keep, then it's going to be talking about drought and temperature on nitrogen and turf grass, but let's make sure we're all on the same page. These guys and gals back then were doing turf grass research and publishing it. This was published in January of 1943. In January of 1943, remember, Roosevelt was meeting with Churchill at Casablanca in Morocco to discuss goods and services that were going to be traded or provided to the allies the german army the six i think it was it was the sixth army i think that got surrendered at stalingrad and hitler was hitler was furious because they didn't um fight to fight to the death and also it wasn't rommel in africa it was another general in in, in africa that that completely moved everything out of Africa at the same month in the same month. So the Germans were in retreat out of Africa. 
They surrendered at Stalingrad and turfgrass scientists are publishing, <laughs> publishing scientific papers on drought temperature and nitrogen of turf grasses. It's, it's astonishing to me that that was going on. And when we were on the, we were teetering on the brink of, you know, Nazi takeover of most of the modern world. And it could have gone either way for a long time, you know, and, um, turf grass scientists are still doing work. They're still publishing. So that's the setting. It's really interesting. And this work was done in temperature um, chambers and Carol's 39 paper was also done in freeze chambers. And the modern refrigerator had only been around for 10 or 15 years. I think it really wasn't commercially available until like the mid 20 or early twenties. And so to have a refrigerator or freezer in 1939 and 1943, when they were doing these things was unheard of back then, extremely expensive to buy these things. And somehow they afforded them and somehow they got this work done. And even today, here I am, you know, 80 years later reading their papers, which is, uh, one of the, one really good reason to publish your work, you know, publish your work. I've said it for years, turf grass, um, research without publication is just a hobby. You're not really doing much good to the industry, um, in the, in the world of science. Um, if you're not publishing it, so publish your work. Um, I know it's, you know, sometimes a second thought after you've done the work, you kind of put it in the back burner and maybe that's not your priority to publish it at that point, but it doesn't do much people any good until you publish it. So get it published because somebody's going to be sitting here 80 years from now reading your work or not reading your work because you didn't publish it. So, um, let's, uh, let's encourage those scientists to, to get them, to get them published, even if it's you know, not necessarily in the highest ranking journal, you know, just get it out. Okay. Enough of the preamble. Let's get started. So this paper will be the last really sort of, um, older paper, I guess, about, uh, fall fertility of cool season grasses. And, and again, the setting is 1940s. Many people, many scientists are very familiar with Dr. AJ Powell's work in the sixties. And these papers that I'm going over prior to the six, prior to Dr. Powell's work are in my mind, setting the stage for what, why he did what he did. He did a lot of, he did a lot of good work in Virginia that showed that late season fall, um, nitrogen applications to bent grass and to, uh, fescue didn't cause any problems. He didn't, he didn't see any winter kill. He did it in the field. Remember? So he was measuring quality and winter kill and these things in under field conditions in Virginia with bent grass and fescue. And he didn't see the same damage or the same concerns that turf managers were, um, observing. And from that work from Dr. Powell, we've since changed our behaviors and we're, we do apply nitrogen in the fall now without much concern. But prior to Dr. Powell, there was this way was work like this, that, um, that had a lot of people convinced to not apply nitrogen. Now there, there's, there's, there's evidence in here. Um, but we just have to be mindful that, um, you know, we build on prior work and, uh, the evidence in here is, is what it is. And then, um, when AJ comes around and finds, um, new data, new evidence, new, new results, and it refutes older results. We have to eventually, um, learn to accept that, you know, our past management practices were probably not as efficient as we might've thought. 
when, when we're presented with refuting evidence, we have to be willing to discard our old ways and, and accept it and, and move forward. And, and that's what Dr. Powell's work really kind of did. And, and, uh, the, the previous work before his is this. So, um, real quick, uh, lush question in chat. Has anyone redone these older papers with newer methods and technologies? So, um, next week or well, tomorrow's paper will start in 72. And then we move to 70, I think it's 73, 74. There's some papers. Um, and then we move forward to more current times. So we have about, I don't remember lush. I want to say it's probably eight or nine more papers to go over, um, on cool season, fall fertility. And so we, I'm starting the older from the old times basically, and I'm moving forward. They're not going to exactly repeat everything because that, that won't be published. You can't just repeat you know, and then publish it, you have to have something new in there, something novel. And, um, and so, um, hi Dustin, welcome. Um, so yes, there is newer work uh, with more modern techniques. Um, in fact, we're, I'm going to talk a little bit about these techniques they used in here and the authors in this paper actually acknowledged that the, their methods didn't work. Um, <coughs> but yeah, there'll be a little bit of newer, newer papers as we move forward, um, starting tomorrow and then into next week. So like, like I said, on Monday and on Wednesday of next week are authors who wrote those papers that were published in the nineties. And I think one paper might've been published in 2004. So we'll, we're getting there. We're getting there. I, I realized that we, we, I have, um, for some reason, some strange interest in understanding the past and how they sort of did things back then. And I'm always astonished at the level of precision and knowledge that they had to, to be able to do that today is challenging. I can't imagine back then. And so I sort of meander through these older papers and it helps me kind of understand the foundation of why they did what they did and why we do what we do today. And, um, anyway, that's the reason I'm starting back then we're moving forward though. Okay, so let's get to this paper, The Effects of Drought Temperature and Nitrogen on Turf Grasses. Now, this was done by Carol. Now, I apologize. I don't know if Carol's a man or a woman. I don't know if he's a professor or not a professor. I don't I don't know. Um, I didn't do much investigation on J.C. Carroll, but um, I, I, maybe somebody out there knows knows uh, who he or she was and can can post it in chat or something. But um, and, and, and I don't really even know where the work was done. There's, remember, this is in the 30s and 40s, and so their, their scientific standards were different back then. And um, and so I, they didn't really say we did this in, you know, Virginia, or we did this in Lexington, or we did this in Massachusetts. They didn't say where they did it. So it's kind of hard to, to know exactly. There's no university information on these papers way back then and so forth. So, and I'm sure 60, 70 years from now, people will be looking back at our papers today going, I can't believe they did this. They got away with writing what they wrote back then. I mean, you know, it's probably going to be similar, but, um, but anyway, that's that's the setting effects of drought. So we're going to be looking at drought temperature. But I'm going to I'm going to um, white out as I've done the last couple of um, uh, documents, the last couple of papers, where I've whited out a lot of the content that's sort of um, not exactly relevant or pertinent to the objectives that the authors set out to do, and it kind of keeps me focused and kind of gets through these papers. Um, so you'll see a lot of blank whiteouts. That's what that is. That's me. That's me intentionally whiting out sections to kind of hit the bullet points. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about, um, drought as drought or temperature as temperature. We're going to talk about uh, the effects of nitrogen 
as as it was applied during drought or during extreme temperatures okay so there are a couple tables in here that i won't show but they didn't that's only because they didn't have a nitrogen component in that particular table that i left out so if you want this this was published in plant physiology i believe that's that was a journal um make sure i'm not fibbing to you here I'm, i can't I, you can google it it's a, it's a free it's a free journal you can open it up and read it yourself i believe it's from plant physiology 1943 Okay. Um, the introduction, as they all are, they kind of set the stage. The factors of major importance in the distribution of grasses are moisture and temperature, and observations have shown that the management plays an important part in the duration of grasses. The present investigation was initiated to determine, one, the relative survival of a number of turf grasses under different degrees or intensities of moisture and temperature. So real simple, they're just going to heat them up or freeze them, and they're going to dry them down and you know and see what see what survives and what doesn't pretty straightforward and the effects of nitrogenous fertilizations during those processes real straightforward study hi dustin and harper yeah so thanks for joining us i'm glad you're able to make it tonight um so it's a real simple study the one thing i've always said is that these older studies this particular one is actually quite long but it's a, he did a number of studies stacked together on this particular paper but these older studies are usually just straight to the point, one question, one method, one answer, and they move on. And I think today's publications may, could learn something in terms of their practical value by maybe seeing how we used to do things back years and years ago. Today, we want so much stuff in one paper, like we're going to change the world with one paper. And you could split that one paper up into two or three papers probably. And, and back then, they just did it real nice and simple. And I like that about those older papers. Okay, um, I left this in to explain it, just to, just to show this. Among recent investigators, it appears to be the consensus of, of opinion that drought and cold resistance cannot be accurately predicted by any of the physical chemical methods yet devised, and that for the most reliable results, the method of direct testing should be employed. I just like that sentence because we haven't really changed that much. I mean, I'm, we're sitting here in 2023, what is it, 83 years later, 80 years later. And if you were going to ask a, a turf scientist, can you give me some um, value in the plant that can give me some reliance or confidence in predicting that particular plant's ability to resist cold tolerance? I don't think we could do that today. There's not like a a hormone or an element or a new or something in the plant that we can say yes the plant is going to die when it gets below negative 10 or something we can't really do that today anyway so we're, we're still today using direct testing methods we're, we're freezing them and we're measuring you know how many survive or we're drying them down and we're measuring intolerance to drought or recovery from drought or visual recovery from you know uh, traffic damage or whatever we have light boxes and we have other things that we use to kind of try to objectively measure these things but there's not like a, a chemical method that we're using to even today um, back then they did try um, and, and and he tries in this paper but then he later says it didn't work he they tried to use what they're called um, bound water and they use like sap content. They use they try to use some con, con, constituents within the plant as a means to say this went down. It the tolerance went down, so 
we can use that to predict it. But he, they later predict, they later um, conclude that it didn't work. Um, you just had to actually visually look at the grass and tell you, tell me this grass is dead and that grass is not dead. And that counts as a one and that counts as a zero. And that's how it gets, how it goes. So, um, um, so yeah, I just think that's interesting that they, they were trying to figure that out back then. And we still haven't, we still don't have a magic, you know, number that we can use to predict tolerance to drought or any, really hardly anything else. Um, so that's the setting. Um, <clears throat> So the question by Lush, um, would, would NTEP, so those who don't know, the NTEP stands for National Turf Grass Evaluation Program, and the NTEP is a program around the United States that puts the same study, or roughly, well, sometimes exactly, but roughly the same exact study of different turf grasses in different, lo um, of the same turf grasses in different locations around the United States. So for example, we might have a study in Dallas, Texas that has 25 turf grass species or turf grass varieties or whatever. And they might put the exact ones in Stillwater, Oklahoma, and they might give close to almost the exact ones in Lexington and so forth. And they just measure various, various things to get an idea to what happened, what happens at these different locations. And, um, and the answer to your question is, or the question is, would NTEP studies help that data of help? I think that was a, a, mis a typo help data of what is cold tolerant drought tolerance that basically would, would NTEP studies help, you know, determine which ones are cold tolerant and which ones are drought tolerant question or the question is that the answer is yes, absolutely. NTEP data is awesome. Okay. It, it, it is, they are fixing uh, under, from what I understand, they're, they're adjusting the website to make it a little bit more user-friendly. Um, so hopefully some of these data can be more easily accessible and easily understood by the average person. Um, but the data are there. So, um, if I did a, well, I don't do NTEP studies anymore, but I did an NTEP study, um, in Fort Lauderdale. I did some NTEP study, NTEP studies here in, in Lexington and those data are up there. And Dr. Um, Munshaw did it before me and so forth. And you can see roughly in your area, like I say, if you're in Tennessee, they have them from Tennessee, but if you're like from, um, um, like, I don't know. Well, they're, they're all like, like South Dakota or something. You might not have one exactly in South Dakota, but you can look at the next closest NTEP location to you and get an idea as to what turf grasses might be most cold tolerant for your location. So yes, Lush, uh, those data are very valuable, um, but they're not super easy to find your way through. And I think from what I understand, they're working on making it more easy to, to understand and to access. So yeah, intep.org, I believe, is the name of the website that that, that um, houses all those data. So please, um, if you if you're ever interested, use that, uh, and and you can get an idea, the general idea in your area, which varieties or cultivars may be more suitable for for your location. And they do vary greatly. Every now and then, you'll have one that's always in the top five, no matter the location. Every or you know, every now and then. Um, but you almost, you almost never have what's best in Dallas is always best in Lexington, best in, you know, Arizona. You have to kind of, they, they change based upon their locations. Okay. Good question. Okay. The materials and methods, I'm, I'm not, I'm just going to show this and I'm going to go over the next material, but he next, the next materials and methods for this section he does, but he has multiple different materials and methods because he did multiple studies. I whited all that out and I'm just going to go to the tables because I can't be here for five hours going over everything he did because they, they did a bunch of different studies. I'm going to basically show the, the gist of it. 
If you want to know all the details, go download it. You can read it for yourself. Download it in 30 seconds. It's available online. Just Google the name or the title. Um, but I'm going to show the highlights of the tables that have the nitrogen in them. But I want to show this first so you can see the, the breadth of the study. The grasses included in the present investigation were Kentucky bluegrass. And here, I mean, I, I'm, and if, you, if you're a turf grass connoisseur, I bet you're going to find some grasses on this list that you never heard of. And when, which was the case with me, Kentucky bluegrass, can, can, Canada bluegrass, rough stalk meadow grass, wood meadow grass, annual bluegrass, Astoria bent and cuckoo's bent, southern German mixed bent, highland velvet bent, red fescue, chewing fescue, sweet vernal, perennial ryegrass, Italian rye, crested what were, crested dog's tail. I know ne I've never seen that. Red top. A, lar a large crab and large crabgrass. So that's the number of grasses that he's looking at with different droughts and different um, temperatures and different nitrogen and see, see how they affect on all these grasses. This is a very robust study, very large study. The plats were maintained under lawn conditions. So all the lawn connoisseurs and homeowners and DIYers and operators, this, this, this study is for you. It was not a golf course. It wasn't a football field. It, it was under lawn conditions. They had two nitrogen rates, no nitrogen and high nitrogen, which was ammonium sulfate applied at a rate of five pounds. Now you have to remember ammonium sulfate was used primarily back then because the Haberbosch process had been developed earlier by Fritz Haber and, and it, was, it had been developed, but they were in Germany and that process was being used to develop ammunition explosives for the war. It wasn't until after the World War II that the influx of ammonium nitrate and, and the nitrogen fertilizers that we know today really started to flood into the United States. But back then, they either used sodium nitrate, which, which was mined, or ammonium sulfate. Um, I don't know what, particularly how they actually uh, manufactured this or they mined this or whatever, but um, ammonium sulfate was common. So... But it says high nitrogen, and then it says ammonium sulfate applied at five pounds per thousand square feet in April, July, and September. So I'm assuming we would never say this today, rate of five, ammonium sulfate at five pounds. We would say the rate of nitrogen, but I'm assuming he applied ammonium sulfate at five pounds, which would be one pound of nitrogen. So I'm assuming he applied one pound of nitrogen in April, another pound in July, and another pound in September, and that's his high nitrogen. So no, not low nitrogen is just nothing. No nitrogen and high nitrogen would be three pounds, April, July, and September. Okay. The general methods, a golf green cup cutter, cup hole cutter was used to cut samples of sod from the plats by means of this tool, plugs of sod in four inch diameter and approximately three inches in thickness were lifted from each plat and placed in glazed earthenware jars of the same dimension. So they're taking samples out and putting them in jars and they use those jars as individual units. Okay, that's different from the Powell study that was all in outdoors. It was in the field. And that's I think that's a key difference between these early studies that were all done either in the greenhouse or in a freeze chamber. And they found that nitrogen did affect a lot of these things, whereas Powell did it in the field and he didn't see much effect of nitrogen at late fall or early fall or late fall application nitrogen um, for bent or, or fescue. He, and, but he did it in the field. So... We'll see this many, many times where you'll do something in the greenhouse or in the, in the lab or wherever, um, and we see this happens. And then we take those results out in the field and we don't see the same thing happened. Okay. And I don't know if that's what happened between these early studies and Powell studies. I don't know, but I do know that's one key difference between the studies is that Powell's was in the field. These were in the greenhouse or in freeze chambers. 
and they had different results. Okay. Okay. Um, let's see what it says before the samples order to shorten the, Oh, in order to shorten the time required to evaluate results, the percentages of survival on a limited number of samples were estimated first by the writer. And then by one, okay. She's just explaining how you estimated survival. These estimation, the difference between the percentages of survival obtained by count and by estimation was not significant. And so the latter method was used to evaluate the result. So they, they did survival, um, by, um, by count. So they did it two different ways. They said there weren't any difference. So they just did it the easiest way. Um, they just basically froze them. They, they waited for, they took them out of the freezer or they took them out of the heater, depending on which one they were doing. And they waited for three weeks in the greenhouse. And they, after three weeks, they counted how many died or, or didn't die. Oh, the soil drought study will kind of show what they did. Um, I'm not going to read through this whole thing. Just, I mean, I can, but it's just, it just gives you an idea of one of the studies, what they did. The relative survival of different grasses when exposed to soil drought was tested by permitting the soil to dry slowly and exposing the samples to air temperatures of 35 degrees C for four hours daily until the moisture of the soil had reached 5% and then 3% in the other series. So they did one group and that went down to 5% and another group that went down to 3%. And they had in this particular study, well, let's see if they get to it. They had different nitrogen rates, the high and the low. Let's see if they talk about it. These values are below the wilting coefficient, so they expected to see problems. The time of drying varied from seven to eight days. Okay, that's not a big deal. Um, the moisture content of the soil was ascertained by weighing daily. That's common. To ensure uniform drying below the wilting point, the plugs were raised and supported to allow circulation, so they lifted them up so they weren't sitting in saturated uh, conditions or the bottom of the... They call, they call it the lower end what do they call it? The lower end lysimeter dynamics. I can't remember what they call it, but there is a difference in the drawing of the, of the column, especially if it's sitting on the bottom of the pot. Um, let me get through this and I'll get your, I'll get to your question, Eric. One second. These, uh, air temperatures were chosen. Okay. So these soil moisture and air, air temperatures were chosen because they are similar to the occasional, to those occasionally encountered in the field in the section of the United States. So they did their best to simulate in the greenhouse, what they have measured in the field. Okay. That's the reason they chose those temperatures. During drop periods at Wooster in the summer of 31 and 36, the moisture in the first four inches of the soil became as low as 3%. Okay, so they're just talking about, I should have whited that out. That's not really relevant. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's. I'm just going to skip through that. After the percentage of water in the soil of the two series has been re had been reduced to 5% and 3% respectively, sufficient water was added to bring the moisture content to approximately 70% of the water holding capacity of the soil. And at the end of three weeks, an estimation was made of the percentage of recovery. So they, they dried these, they dried them down to two different percentages in the soil. They then, they then took, once they hit the percentage, they took them out. They added a little bit of water to the soil to bring it back up to 70% fill capacity. And then they put them in the greenhouse and waited for three weeks and they counted how many survived. That's pretty straightforward. We, we like killing grass in turf grass science. Sometimes <laughs> the percentage of recovery is considered an index relative to the drought resistance of different species. Okay, here we go. Okay. So table one, before I get to that, let me look, let me see what Eric's question is. Wouldn't an outdoor field still get some heat from the sun as well as be more insulated by surrounding soil? Whereas a jar wouldn't have, would have little surrounding insulation. I assume no sunlight. Yeah. I mean, the, 
buffer, the, the heat buffering capacity of an open field is going to be much greater than, than a little pot for sure. Um, like I said, we wouldn't, well, I mean, we might do that today. We, we might do something today where we would take it out of the field and stick it in a, a freezing chamber or something. We, there's still, there's still chambers today that will keep the soil warm and the air cold, the air co- warm, the soil cold. There's all different ways we can kind of manipulate things nowadays. Um, but yes, I mean, there are, there are going to be clearly differences that exist between field conditions and greenhouse conditions that can and often do, um, result in completely different results. And what we're concerned about is what happens in the field, right? We're always doing our best to simulate in the greenhouse because of the cost. So the reason we're doing things in the greenhouse is one control and cost. We can control things much easier in the greenhouse or in growth chambers or whatever. And we can do a much larger number of units for less money. So that's oftentimes, let's just use the extreme example when we're doing, I don't do breeding, but I've seen a lot of breeding studies. So I don't want to say something, you know, some breeder laugh at me because I'm saying something wrong. I acknowledge I'm not a breeder. I don't know what I'm doing when it comes to breeding. But what I've seen is, well, they'll, they'll start off with little um, cells, little tiny little cells. I think, and they'll start off with germplasms in the in the in the lab, and they'll come into the greenhouse and they have these tiny little long, you know, yellow uh, growth cones, what they look like, and they'll just grow dozens and dozens and dozens of different germplasms of these different grasses. And they do that in the greenhouse to to weed out the lesser producing, lesser quality product, lesser quality germplasms. And it's the ones that tend to rise to the top in terms of quality or whatever they're looking at, drought resistance or whatever, that they then take to the field. So we're always we're always aware that greenhouse results don't predict what will happen in the field all the time. But we have to start somewhere. And in, in order to keep the cost down, we generally will do a lot of things in the greenhouse and then try to take what we find out into the field. So yes. So what is in the field in terms of the heat and the sun, that like you're saying the insulation effect of surrounding soil, all that is definitely true. There is a, there is definitely an effect on that rainfall. Um, just the light differences in a greenhouse. We have a glass house that's all open glass and just the, the shade from the, from the support structures in the greenhouse can have an effect on the on the pots in the greenhouse. They have to be blocked properly based upon how the greenhouse is oriented to the sun because just the shade from a structure in the glasshouse that's holding the glass, the actual uh, support structure, just that can alter your data because it happens to be the shade on that one pot for 15, 20 minutes longer than another pot and that's just enough to throw things out of whack. So we're aware of that, but we do our best. You know, I'm sure they were doing their best too. Okay, uh, so this table one, we have the, I think there's five or six tables, so let's try to get through it. So table one, survival of certain turf grasses as affected by the nitrogen and water content of the soil. Okay, so this one is uh, right, uh, I'll use my little drawing thing, 5% soil moisture is right here. This is the 5% soil moisture soil, and this is the, the drier one, 3% soil moisture soil. We have low nitrogen, and we have high nitrogen, and on the... On the far left of the table, we have all the grass species that I mentioned. Okay. And I'm not, don't quiz me on all these. I don't know half of these names. <laughs> Obviously the poas and the fescues or the festucas and the crustus, all these things I know, but I don't know all these other ones. Okay. Poetry of, of course I know there's the basic ones, you know, as I, as do I, but I don't know all these other ones, but there's all these other turf grass, all these, all these turf grasses here, probably whatever, 10 or 12, 15 turf grasses. And what, what I want to point out is in the, in the 5% soil moisture treatments where it's not quite as dry as a 3% three percent, obviously 
the low nitrogen almost in every case, actually, I think in almost in every case, there's one here where Southern German mixed bent had the same. There's a couple of them that had the same. Agrosis had, had the same here, but almost always the low nitrogen had a higher survival rate than the high nitrogen. So for example, the Poa pretensis had a hundred percent survival at 5% soil moisture and low nitrogen and only had 70% survival at 5% soil moisture and high nitrogen. Okay. So you can see right down the line here, most of these are all lower at the, on the high nitrogen. There's a lower survival rate than on, on, on the low nitrogen. The low nitrogen had a higher survival rate. So when we go, when we dry it down even further to 3% soil moisture, the low nitrogen begins to die. The, the ones that were 100% survival at the 5% are now 80, 75, 75, 70% survival. We see a much uh, more pronounced effect of drought uh, with low nitrogen is actually no nitrogen in this case, but look at what happens with the high nitrogen. So an, ex an, an extreme drought, okay, 3% soil moisture and high nitrogen, we see a much more pronounced effect where the survival rate really drops. We're only having half the units survive of pro-pretensis. Okay, the agrustus species are 40%, 50% as well. They're quite low. The poetriv is 35%. So we, so these are, you, know, you notice there's no statistics. In the world, in, in today's world, this would never get published and, and no one would ever send this table in to get published. They, they know because I can't tell you that 80%, believe it or not, I can't tell you that 80% is greater than 50%. I know that sounds, I don't know, that sounds inaccurate, but it's accurate. I can't tell you that 75 is greater than 35 unless I have some sort of measure of the variability in the, in the, in the data set. So they just, back then they would say, you know, 80% is greater than 50, you know, 70 is greater than 45. It probably is. If you ran the, ran the stats on this, it probably is, but I can't tell you that it's what, that's what it is. But clearly, even without statistics in this, there's clearly at least, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I don't like to use the word trend, but there's clearly a, a relationship between high nitrogen resulting in reduction in survival whenever the, whenever these grasses have been dried down. Okay. Compared to no nitrogen. So if you're not applying any nitrogen, you have a better chance of survival than if you applied a lot. Okay. So that's what he found in the first table. I'm going to get, there's, there's several more. I'm going to white out. There's a lot of this that's whited out. It's just a bunch of, you know, discussion and a bunch of materials and methods. Now he's going to high soil and air temperatures. So that was drought. Now he's going to go to the high soil temperatures and high air temperatures. Okay. See what, let's see what happens with this. To determine the effect of turf grasses on high soil temperature accompanied by high soil moisture, 60 jars of sod representing four applications of each grass were placed on a tray in a still tank containing water. So he heated the soil up with water. That's how he kept the soil high, the soil temperature high, because he kept the water surrounding these, these jars high. Okay. Okay. Um... So bringing it up to 50% C was not lethal to grasses growing in the low nitrogen section. So no nitrogen, but most of these same species in the high nitrogen section were injured by the 50 degrees C. So table three. So here we are again. So we're a very similar looking table. We have grasses on the left, uh, on the far left column, 
And this is the survival of certain turf grasses as affected by the nitrogen content and high temperatures of the soil. Okay. So we have 50 degree C soil. We have 60 degree C soil. And then we have 50 degree C soils at four hours. Okay. We have low nitrogen at each of these temperatures and we have high nitrogen at each of these temperatures. And you really don't need me to explain it. 50 degrees C at low, low nitrogen, air, all of these are 100% survival. None of them died. But when you apply the same exact temperature, but yet apply nitrogen to these uh, one pound of nitrogen on those three applications, you see the, the, on some of these species, the survival rate dropped to 90, 70, as low as 50% down here with the Astoria. Okay. So we're clearly having an effect by applying high nitrogen. When you go to 60 degrees C, you see even in the low nitrogen, you're seeing a lot of death, really unacceptable death, even at the low nitrogen. But clearly, some of these are zero at the high nitrogen at 60 degrees C. So really high, high temperatures in the soil with high nitrogen is just a lethal combination. Um, the temperature with no nitrogen is pretty lethal to most things. Okay. So again, high nitrogen... Um, is clearly causing some problems with with these with these cool season grasses. Okay. Um let me check the chat. Did they do any testing to see what ex what the existing soil nitrogen was? Um let's I'd have to go let me let me do this. I don't recall that lush. It's possible. Let me see if I can um let me see if I can track that down real quick in here. I'm just reading through back through here through the materials and methods real quick and see if I can find it. I didn't recall it the first time I read it. Um, but it certainly could be in there and I just missed it. Yeah, I, I don't see it lush in here, but you're welcome to download it. This is a free article. You're welcome to download it and look through it and may, maybe find where I missed it. I don't see it. I, I don't see it lush. Okay. <clears throat> I hope that's okay calling you Lush. I don't know your real names, so I apologize. I should probably get to know you guys better. You guys are always so so polite to me in chat. And <laughs> okay, um, so that was high air, uh, soil temperatures. Now they did high air temperatures. The effect of short exposure to high air temperatures on turf grasses was investigated by placing the grasses for different intervals of time in Freya's draft oven. So they just stuck them in an oven, which is what we probably do today too. The temperatures were used were 40, 50, and 60 degrees C, and the time were four and six hours at each temperature. The exposure to heat was made in the evening as the, as the experiments on soil drought. So they got three temperatures, two different time intervals. Okay. Um, so here's the, expo here's the survival of these grasses when exposed to 50 degrees centigrade for, four, for six hours. The low end... You see anywhere between 80, oh, all the way down to seven. There's actually one down here at seven, but most of them are 80, 70, 60, 60% 60 survival. 
with no nitrogen when exposed at very high air temperature. Did I say air? Yeah, air temperatures for six hours. But when you apply that high nitrogen, they documented a signal. I mean, I, would, I don't know. I don't know the stats here, but clearly there was a reduction in survival. You're looking at 40, 15, 30, there's a 55 in there, two, five, seven. I mean, there was a, clearly a reduction in survival, an increase in death by applying high nitrogen when it's associated with high air temperatures. Okay. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, cold air temperatures. So now they're going to go to percent of survival of turf grasses following a single cooling to different soil temperatures. So, so now this is uh, soil temperatures. What, what's a, um, I'm not sharing the, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for telling me that. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. So <laughs> you got to you got to you got to do what Lush did and just tell me I'm screwing things up. You, as you all well know, I am not um uh, uh electronically literate. <laughs> so please just put all caps. Hey, you know, you're not showing us the stuff. So here's what I was talking about. Percentage of survival, 80% down to 70 and then high nitrogen, 40 down to 2. So this is the the influence of the higher temperatures. Sorry, guys. Thanks for thanks for um, calling me out in that lush. I appreciate it. Now let's go to um, the single cooling. So different soil temperatures. So now we're down percentage of survival with final soil temperature. So can you? I mean, you have to keep in mind. Don't forget, Hitler is blowing things up at the same time they're doing this research. Okay. He is pulling his troop. Well, he didn't pull him out. His generals are surrendering in Stalingrad. They're pulling out of Africa. And look at this, the level of work that these people are doing. Air temperatures, soil temperatures, drought, nitrogen, all these turf grasses. I mean, it's the setting is, is impressive, to say the least. It is extremely impressive that they were doing all this work. It's amazing. So I, I just, that's one thing I hope that to get out of this, uh, this channel and this podcast is, you know, an appreciation for the amount of effort and work that has gone in in the past to, to get this lit in the literature and to do this work. And so that people can use it. I just, I, I, it just doesn't do it justice to have it sit on a, on a dusty shelf somewhere and no one knows it's there and no one use it. And so I don't know, may, I just feel like somehow I may be doing a small part to kind of reintroduce it into our into our industry i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm naive anyway um percentage of survival of turf grasses following a single cooling at different soil temperatures and so you see uh soil temperatures negative five negative 10 negative 15 and negative 20 real simple high and low nitrogen here's all the turf grasses and you can see the death increases the colder it gets obviously you, you would expect that but within within each temperature you see an increase in death associated with high rates of nitrogen. Okay. Whether it's in the five degree C or the 10 degree C or 15 degree C, you see much more turf death. Almost. I haven't gone through every single species, but well, here's one, here's one that's the same 90 and 90, but pretty much across the board, every single species shows greater death when it is exposed to low temperatures and more nitrogen as opposed to low temperatures and less nitrogen okay so you can you can appreciate why turf managers weren't applying nitrogen in the fall 
they're showing all these data showing well clearly there's something going on here there's it is resulting in death I mean, you know the turf managers were listening to the experts and they were following what was then a best management practice okay i mean it's you can't fault them they they are doing what looked to be the best thing okay that's that's all the tables so in in summary i thought i highlighted something in summary but i guess i didn't so in summary so they had 15 species six genera of turf grasses exposed to soil drought and to extremes in soil and air temperatures the effect of nitrogenous nitrogenous fertilizers in conjunction with these conditions were also investigated just summed up the study um just summing it up is that the uh least has the differences in species i want to get to the nitrogen species were exposed to air temperatures until soil temperature of the species most injured by low he's talking about the differences in species which is important but for some reason i find that less interesting um yeah oh at the end of each paragraph i remember at the end of each paragraph the species from so this is talking about the drought the species from high nitrogen section were less able to withstand soil drought than than the same species from the low nitrogen the end of the next paragraph talking about temperatures talking about um air temperatures the species from the high nitrogen were less resistant to cold than those from the low nitrogen section pretty straightforward at the end of the next one same thing species from high nitrogen section suffered greatly in great injury than those from the low nitrogen section the data from these tests made a this is what this is why i canceled out bound water and sugars this is i just left that out because he oh here it is actually i think this is why i left it in um these data were found so he stopped they they also did a lot of other things bound water and sugars and all these other things and he says in here i'll just read it real quick the data from tests made on bound water and sugars showed that the accumulation of these two constituents was decreased by the application of nitrogenous fertilizers these data were found to be unreliable as criteria of the relative hardiness of the turf species to heat cold and drought so what he's saying is we thought we would measure these things and we would see a relationship between these and cold hardness then they said they didn't so they don't work um that's the reason i didn't show it because it, all these data they were they showed in the paper about sugars and water and stuff um, none of it worked um so i left it out okay so basically the take-home message is this guys on in 1930 1940 when they were doing these studies on in greenhouses they had a good reason to avoid applying nitrogen in the fall to cool season grasses or this these cases the nitrogen was applied at a different time of year the nitrogen was applied um uh in april july and then and then september so spring and then one in the summer and then one in the fall uh so they had a good reason to not apply it but but like i said that was the setting and people followed it and then what happens inevitably and the same thing will happen with what we're doing today with some of our management practices today if you think if you think all of our management practices today will be the same 40 50 years now you're crazy some of them some of the things we're doing today will eventually be found to be flawed they will eventually be found to not be as efficient as some new method and that's what dr powell did he changed he his paper changed the way we apply fertilizer in the fall because he did it outside he did it in the field and he said hey i know this is what they found i know this is what people are doing let's look at it in the field they looked out in the field and said hey we didn't see anything we didn't see the same problems that they were predicting and that they were showing in these greenhouse studies in the 30s and 40s so you should be able to apply this in the fall and be fine 
And how many, for how many decades have we been doing it now? We've been applying nitrogen in the fall and we're fine. Now, I think even Powell studies would, would show, and if he were alive, I think he'd agree. We're not talking about going out there and blasting it with nitrogen. Even now we're in mid-October. You know, we're not talking about going out and blasting it with nitrogen. We're talking about reasonable rates in September, maybe another reasonable application in October, depending on where you're at in the United States. But once you get into November and December, the applications at those time frames, those time periods, don't provide much benefit in the fall. Most of the data will show a benefit in the spring relative to the earlier fall applications. But during the time frame between November and December, and the benefit, the beneficial response of those applications in the spring, there's nitrogen sitting there in the soil, and that's increasing a lot of concern and risk to the environment. And that's one thing that I, I believe my guest on Monday and I will discuss is that, yes, it's there. Yes, you may see a benefit in the spring if, um, if you did it in November and December, but there's really not much advantage to that as opposed to just doing it in September and October. And then applying a half a pound or a pound in the spring, like three or four weeks prior to, to, you know, when you would expect to see green up or something that greatly reduces our risk of offsite movement. And it doesn't really change much in terms of the turf grass response or the turf grass uptake. The uptake would be, as you'll see on Monday, the uptake is going to be the key thing that we talk about on Monday, how much actually gets into the plant. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see what we got in chat. Uh, Chuck says, question, was it truly death, not dormancy? How is death determined? Oh, in the paper, they explain it. Yeah. So, um, survival. So they, they, they determined survival. So whether or not it was dormancy or not, they didn't differentiate. They didn't clearly differentiate between whether it was dormant or whether it was, uh, dead, you know, um, but you can, you can read the paper. I can go back through it if you want to, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but you can read the paper. It's a free paper, and you can see exactly what they did. And if they didn't differentiate between this is dormant or this is dead, um, that, that could be a, a point of uh, concern. I, I would say that um, it, dead and dormant grass don't look the same. Uh, most dormant grass will look different than dead grass, um, even though they're both brown they will, they, you know, a, a trained person would normally be able to tell the difference between a dead, dead turf and dormant turf, but you're, you're right. They, 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 they didn't say, I, I don't know. So good, good question, Chuck. Uh, Lush was the cold data collected in the winter as plants had time to harden off or, or at least pulled mid season and put in the deep freeze. Uh, uh, so in a previous paper, they did, they did let them harden off in this one. Again, I, let me go back and look, <laughs> they had different materials and methods for each one, the temperature and for the, um, drought and for all these other things. And they, so I just, I just widened them all out because I'd be here till the end of time going over all these different materials and methods, but you're asking specifically on cold. So let me see if I can answer that question on cold. Did they let them harden off? I, I don't, I want to say no. But let me see what they let me see what they said in the in the uh, materials and methods because I know they had okay so you're you're asking about the cold data okay um, well if you want to see their their um, no that's the drought 
thought I had that. Oh, high soul temperature. Okay, so you want to see the cold, cold, cold soul temperature. High air temperature. Okay, low soul temperature. Um, okay, yeah, okay, it's right here. So, let me bring it back on screen here. So, I'm looking at the cold temperature section. This is the um, single cooling difference. So, this is, oh... I, oh, now I think I recall that they actually did one with and without here on this one. So, I, but let me, let me read this though. The extent of injury due to a, into a plant due to cold depends upon the type of plant and upon the nature of its preconditioning. So this is, this is hardening off is what they were talking about, Lush. Did you, yeah, Lush has. Most perennial plants growing in the temperature region can to some extent be hardened to cold and thus enable to withstand lower temperatures than when not hardened. Okay. So that's what you're talking about. In the present study, a comparison of the endurance of different grasses to cold was made on samples from both the unfertilized and fertilized sections of the plant, plats. The grasses were permitted to harden off naturally. And you guys are all over it. So right there, the grasses were permitted to harden off naturally. Okay. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta learn more about you guys. You guys are sharp. <laughs> Can't slide anything by you guys. Um, oh well, yeah. So you're just saying you're enjoying these older papers. Yeah. It's not quite, um, what, what's that term? Um, I can't remember the term, uh, steampunk. It's not quite steampunk style old stuff, but it's, you know, these older papers are sometimes fun to read. I just like the way that scientists were more straight to the point back then. And there was less, um, um, try to say this nicely. There was less candy coating or less, less whitewashing stuff or they, it was just straight to the point. And you have to remember not until 1970s were, um, were most turf scientists allowed to receive funding from private industry from grants. Funding for turfgrass research was almost entirely provided by the state or federal government until 73, 4, 5, something like that. In fact, I have it on good authority directly from the professor who started in 1971. Who He was told by his chair, do not accept money from any in private industry to do research. The, the, the institution provided them a budget for their work. So the University of X gave each professor X amount of dollars and they were to do their research with those dollars. They weren't allowed to even go out and get grants. And nowadays it's the complete opposite. It's like you better go get grant money or you're not going to get tenure. And so I think back then turf professors were a little, um, less, uh, I don't know. They're just a little more, um, <laughs> trying to say this without getting my digging myself a hole. They were just a little more upfront with the data and the results. They weren't, they weren't trying to, you know, tiptoe around potential funding landmines. You know, they weren't, you know, if you, you take off the wrong person who's funding you, then you're not going to get the funding back again. So you got to be real careful how you say things. And back then they didn't have to worry about that because all their funding came from the, from the government. 
Nowadays, it's the total opposite. You might get, I think I got a couple hundred dollars a year, maybe, from from uh, from the from the department at both UF and, and UK. It wasn't much. It paid for maybe one hotel at a national meeting. That was it. Um, but uh, so all of, all of my funding came from from grants, industry industry money, or a st- I, had, I had a state grant. And you can get federal and state grants; those are a little different. Those are those are much better if you can get those. But uh, when you, well, there's a lot of money comes from private industry, so you got to be careful what you say. You know, if you want to keep the funding coming in. So anyway, um, all right, guys, we're gonna shut this thing down. It's ten o'clock tomorrow. I'll be back on at ten a.m. So I'm shutting it down now, and I'll be right back on in twelve hours. We're going to go over the the Wilkinson seventy two paper, and we'll start. Who I don't know, remember who said it earlier about doing some more current papers. We're going to start moving forward in time and doing a lot more current work. The paper tomorrow, uh, the Wilkinson paper is is um, not. It doesn't contradict Powell's paper. There's many parts of it that that complement it, but there's some parts of the Wilkinson paper that um, that have different um, results than what Doctor Powell said. More in line with what we're finding here in, the, in these older papers. So. Um, that's, that's sort of how, how it works. So, um, so yeah, that's how studies should be funded. I guess. Yeah. No, no, no BS. That was no BS back then. That's for sure. <laughs> there, there was just say there was less BS. They had to, had to, had to, uh, deal with less BS, I suppose, back in the day. Anyway, thanks everybody for showing up. We had a good attendance tonight. Good, good talks in the chat. I really appreciate it tomorrow morning. I'll be back on at 10 o'clock. This is turf grass epistemology. Thanks for all for showing up. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a good evening.